Well, let's go ahead and get started and uh, see if we can pray some more people in. There we go. Yeah, there you go. We did it. Yeah. Mr. Hunter, would you open us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for goodness, grace, mercy, that you've displayed and shown to us each one of us. Thank you for the relationship that we can have with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for your word, the truth you've given us to, to learn more about you, to study, um, to hide in our hearts that, that we won't sin against you and bring us and apply that and wrap our minds around it that we can touch the word, the words, Lord, that you would be able to impart and teach us, Lord, and that we would be able to, to gain hold of, to get a hold of, and just um, use that to glorify you in our minds and our conversation, Lord. Okay, so tonight our topic is the covenants of Scripture, and specifically Israel's covenants, uh, but we'll talk about a couple of others as well. These are important because they're really the nodal points uh, that sort of tie the whole of the Scripture together. Uh, now, we've, last week we introduced, uh, well, three types of covenants, two that actually find uh, find mention in the scripture. One was a suzerainty covenant, which is a bilateral covenant. Two parties enter in, God enters in, and the people enter into the covenant mutually. Uh, the other was a promissory uh, covenant, or a divine grant, a royal grant, uh, whereby God promises to do something and there is no, uh, no entry into covenant by the human party. But both, both of these covenants, once entered, become, in a sense, unconditional. They are going to be fulfilled. Uh, now, there may be any one given generation that doesn't receive the benefits of the covenant because of disobedience, but the covenants remain in, in effect. It's not as though disobedience by one of the parties caused the covenant off. Okay? Here we are on page... I think probably page 38 here, number 5, Elements of a Biblical Covenant. Is that right? Okay. Um, and some of these are perhaps a little bit uh, contrived, uh, but let's, let's see if we can't uh, put this down and, and, and make some sense of it. I say here, in order to have a covenant, in order to, to look, at, look at an arrangement in Scripture and say, this is a covenant, what do we have to have? Well... I think the best thing is to have a clear declaration from the scriptures that it's a covenant, first of all. We've got that. We've got a covenant. Also, if we've got definite and specific covenant language, uh, the, this language of promise. You will do this. I will do this. Divine promises. And then, in the case of the suzerainty treaties, there's precepts and penalties. There's sanctions attached uh, to the, uh, the covenant you need to do this in order uh, to be a recipient of the covenant blessings. Okay? Now, again, those are contrived. Those are, it's not as though we have some sort of Bible verse that we can appeal to say that these are the four elements that you have to see in order to have a covenant. But I think they're a good start, and I think they, they make sense. If that is true, we have at least five that we can, def we can definitively find. Uh, one comes here. I use blue uh, because these are the covenants. So the Noahic covenant appears right here. 
we've got right here the Mosaic Covenant. Oops, excuse me. It's Abrahamic. We get ahead of ourselves. Here we've got Mosaic. And up till this point you say, okay, well it looks like we've got one at every one of the junctures of the dispensations, but it doesn't quite stay as clean as, as that. Uh, we've got one right here. We've already put this one down here. Uh, but the Davidic covenant sort of appears right in the middle of this dispensation. Um, and then we have, I'll put a dotted line here, uh, we have the new covenant that is promised here, but we actually find that the promise is for when the kingdom comes. Now, we're going to have to talk about the relationship of the New Covenant with the New Testament church, uh, because there's New Covenant language that is used with reference to the church. But as we see it in the Old Testament, the promises given in the Old Testament really bypass this idea of church. In fact, they, the Old Testament really doesn't, it really doesn't know of this period of time, the church. And so the covenant blessings all seem to have reference to this to this, this time period here. Okay. Now, there's other covenants that are proposed in Scripture. Okay. You know, we, we talked about Reformed theology or covenant theology, which is sort of the major alternative uh, to uh, dispensational theology. They have basically three covenants. Okay. First one takes place back here. And I'll put it here. Uh, we'll, we'll, it's the covenant of redemption. It takes place before anything starts. This is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, uh, coming together and saying, hey, we would like to start a plan of redemption. Okay? And so they covenant together and say, we're going to, we're going to save ourselves some people. Okay? Of course, part of the tension at this point is, well, there aren't any people yet. Okay, well, then we're going to have to create them. Okay, And then an original arrangement here is made, which may be called the Adamic Covenant. Some dispensationalists are fine using the term Adamic Covenant. Usually the Reformed guys call this the Covenant of Works. Okay, this, And the idea here, Adam... If you do these things that I tell you and do them perfectly, you will live forever. And in fact, everyone that follows after you will be confirmed in holiness and everything will be great. Of course, Adam fails almost immediately. And so that is replaced in, in Reformed theology with what might we call, well, we'll put it here, the Edenic Covenant or uh, the Covenant of Grace. Okay, so the idea here is that God wanted to save some people. He created Adam, gave him a covenant of works. Adam flubbed it up, and so a covenant of grace was instituted, whereby someone would do the works that Adam couldn't. Okay, and so there's ultimately one. When we talk about covenant theology, this is the covenant they're talking about. Okay, this is the one. Now these are these are. Uh, additional covenants, but ultimately there's only one covenant with multiple iterations. He has a covenant of redemption, which is explained to to Adam. Adam fails, 
But it's not as though the, identi- the, the covenant of grace is a different covenant. It's the same covenant, except it's being fulfilled by somebody else, which is Christ. Okay? So Christ does the works that we couldn't do. Okay? The problem, of course, with that, with that whole arrangement is that it's, a, it's just a complete argument for silence. Okay? Now, obviously, God does have some sort of a plan in mind when he starts, but we really have no no reasonable language in Scripture to say that this was a, a pact made within the Trinity that we would call the covenant of redemption. Okay, And furthermore, I'll be right with you. And, and furthermore, as we've seen, there seems to be more going on in the universe than just redemption. Okay, There seems to be more going on than just that. Okay, beautiful question. You say they have three uh, covenants covenant yeah. do they uh, <clears throat> the other five that they, they, would, they would see these but they, they would see these as sort of iterations of the same covenant so they're just covenant renewals and perhaps advances on the original covenant but they're ultimately the same covenant okay okay so now if you want to call this an Adamic covenant. I, I guess I don't really have a problem calling it an Adamic covenant. I don't really like calling it a covenant of works. But, but if you want to call it, it's obviously some sort of arrangement that God made with Adam. Adam knew what he was supposed to do, and and he didn't do it. Now it doesn't fit with any of the ancient Near Eastern covenant types. But at least we can certainly say that there was some sort of an arrangement. There is a, a verse in Hosea, I think it's Hosea 6, 7, uh, which talks about a covenant made with Adam. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unclear exactly what is meant there. Uh, the word Adam is, is simply, if, if you're familiar with Hebrew, the word Adam simply means man. And the statement made in Hosea, uh, just like Adam, the children of Israel broke covenant. Okay, it could be saying just like Adam broke his covenant, so Israel broke their covenant. It could mean just as is the as is, is typical of men, they broke covenant. So it's a little bit unclear as to what is meant there. I, I don't really I don't really lose any sleep if you want to talk about it, a cov- uh, an Adamic covenant there. Um, I don't include it here among those biblical covenants that are clearly defined as such. Okay. Same with the Edenic covenant here. Again, it doesn't seem to have enough features of a covenant for me to say that is a that is a, a biblical covenant. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, the other covenants were to, to regain the fellowship between God and man or, or the relationship. But in the, in the Adam situation though, here we had the relationship, right? It well, the covenants were not necessarily to restore broken relationships. Uh, the covenants were there to establish parameters for relating with God. Okay, and and some of them, some of them were restoring broken relationships with God, but some of them were simply an explanation of how God relates. Now, for instance, the Davidic covenant. You know, the Davidic covenant was, was not there to say that, okay, so now we've got David, people can be rightly related to God. 
It was rather, no, it was, it was God saying, this is the way I'm going to relate to people. I am going to establish a kingship that will last forever. It's going to start with you, David, continue with Solomon, and ultimately result in a Messiah king. So I, um, because, because these three uh, sit right at the, right at the, at the uh, hinges of history, some have suggested, okay, there has to be a hinge for everyone. And so there's Eden, there's the Adamic Covenant, there's the Adamic Covenant, and it works kind of neatly. Uh, it gets a little bit fuzzy out here. Uh, but uh, some have suggested it, and, and, and I don't lose sleep, if you call it an Adamic Covenant or an Adamic Covenant, but they, they don't seem to have the features of, of a covenant that uh, we'd like to see in order to say, yeah, that's a covenant. So what we're going to be talking about here is not so much this one, which we, I mean, there's, there's just no, no evidence of it, okay? So we, we're, we're not going to talk about that one. We're not, necess- we're not going to talk about these either, um, because, again, I'm not sure that they're covered. They seem to be sort of opening arrangements. Of, this, is, this is the ground rules for the creation. Um, and, and Noah's becomes the first clear covenant. Now, We've said, we said last time that this, this Noah's covenant is really here that it starts, it starts the civil kingdom, okay? And we talked quite a bit about that already. But what we want to start in on here are Israel's covenants. We're going to start with Abraham, Moses, David, and New. And those are going to be the subjects of our, of our study tonight and, uh, and see if we can't uh, piece them together and figure out their significance within the biblical storyline. Does that make sense? Okay. Question? Doesn't oh. dispensation have a separate covenant? No. Uh, and, and like I say, that's why, uh, why some dispensationalists say, okay, there's an Adamic covenant and an Edenic covenant because there's a covenant here, here, and here, so there ought to be two back there. The problem is it just doesn't seem like we have enough data to say that. And it becomes really fuzzy here because the new covenant, the new covenants are, is, well, David doesn't have a David doesn't have his own dispensation for, for one. And then the new covenant becomes really fuzzy uh, because there's new covenant language. All the new covenant language in the Old Testament points here. But then you've got a few references in, in, the, in, in the epistles especially uh, where we find new covenant language used for the church age. And so we've got to, we've got to figure out exactly what that is. So... so I, my answer is I don't think so, although there are several that do. <coughs> okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I should say, if, if turning the page for me, I also have letter E here. Some would say there's a Palestinian covenant that would come, like, right here. Um, it's basically a covenant renewal of the Mosaic Covenant for the new generation that is entering into the promised land. I don't see that as a separate covenant. Uh, some do, and if you do, again, if you do, I don't lose sleep over it, but I understand the Palestinian covenant to be just a re- repetition of the Mosaic covenant for the, for the next generation, okay? Uh, so I'm not going to include that. Okay, so let's look at these four covenants, the covenants of Israel. Now, So why why is it important to talk about Israel's covenants? Well, these are all given to Israel. Uh, The only only clearly defined covenant that's not given to Israel is Noah's. 
And it's these covenants, these four covenants with Israel, that are of greatest interest to the course because God has obliged himself to eternally abide by the terms of these covenants. And we're going to see eternal language with every one of these covenants. It becomes very important because if, in fact, the gifts and the covenants of God are irrevocable and they must be fulfilled according to their self-contained terms, then there is a future, a, in fact, a bright future, a, a prominent future uh, for the nation of Israel that succeeds this, uh, the church age, okay, which is uh, one of the most visible features then of dispensational theology. For, again, we're going to see here, for covenant theology, the church has replaced Israel. The church is the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. And so there isn't an Israel that we have to come back to. And for that reason, uh, the millennium becomes almost, becomes almost unnecessary. Uh, but for dispensationalists, this millennium becomes very important because that's when God returns his attentions to Israel. Okay? So, the verse here that's critical here, uh, I, 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 I sort of piece it together from several verses in Romans 9 to 11, all in order here. He's writing to my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To these belong the adoption of sons, the glory, and the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service, and the promises whose are the fathers, and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is over all, God bless forevermore, amen. The word of God has not failed. And that's, uh, this, that's the, the point he's addressing in these three chapters, Romans 9 to 11. The promises and covenants of God have not failed. Because Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I am an Israelite, not a spiritual Israelite, but a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's making sure these are his, 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 his ethnic credentials. Not, not spiritual credentials, ethnic credentials. God has not rejected my people whom he foreknew. They did not stumble so as to fall. So when they crucified Christ, it was a severe stumbling when they crucified the Christ. But they did not stumble so as to fall irreparably. May it never be, he says. And... There will come a time when all Israel will be saved because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Yes? Okay, now just at first glance, I think I know the answer, but what is your answer for in the middle of that, the remnant that will be saved, and then down at the bottom, all, all Israel. Israel will be saved? Yes. So is it that in the tribulation, all Israel will be saved after their numbers have been whittled down quite a bit? That seems that, that's how that's how I would take it. Yes, okay. that at the at the end of the tribulation, the the numbers of Israel have been reduced. They're pretty much they're they're pretty much have isolated themselves in Jerusalem. The 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 armies of the earth are converging upon them. Israel's about to be snuffed out of existence. God appears in the sky, lands on the earth. They will look upon whom they have pierced. And they will weep for him, and so and 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 I think that's that's how I understand. In fact, 
Romans references that very passage. Okay. They will they will look upon him whom they have fierce, and they will all serve serve him from shoulder to shoulder. So I understand that to be a a a, a universal salvation of all the Jews that are left, which may be a fairly small number at that point. Because all Israel will be, I mean, that's that's a language, so uh, all Israel would seem to be all all the Jews that are are still alive at this point. Okay, so, why is dispensationalism important to me? Well, because the fidelity of Paul's words, and ultimately God's words, are at stake. And now look at what happens between uh, dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, and Reformed or Covenant theology. Covenant theology maintains that God has changed the terms of his covenant. I, I, I just don't see any other way to sugarcoat that and make it sound any more pleasant. To me, that's what it, it, most covenant theologians don't like to be called replacement theologians, but I think that's what they are. Okay, they have they have said, okay, Israel, this ethnic group of Israel has stumbled so as to fall, and so they have been replaced by spiritual Israel, a, and, and that would be the church. Okay, so I, I say here, covenant theology maintains that God has changed the terms of his covenants, really, uh, by arbitrarily abandoning his promises to the party with whom he made the original covenants and selecting a new party. Israel failed, so I'll get a spiritual Israel, a new Israel. So the church replaces Israel. In so doing, covenant theology creates, in my mind, this is, this is my intention here, effectively creates a capricious God whose trustworthiness is suspect. He's made a promise, and then he's, he's fulfilled the promise in somebody else. So he becomes, I think, an arbitrary and tyrannical suzerain, much like the pagan nations around Israel. You know, the, these pagans around would break their covenants, and because they were extremely powerful, they could. They could shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well. But we don't have a God who is a sovereign, uh, who the, the sovereign God is not that kind of a suzerain who says, oh, well, I'll go somebody else. It says here that the gifts and the promises of God, the covenants of God, are, are, are irrevocable. And so that's, I mean, this is, this is one of the critical reasons here uh, why I would say I'm a dispensationalist rather than covenant theologian. Now, progressive dispensationalism and new covenant theology, we've introduced them earlier, basically means, basically see God changing the terms of the covenant by expanding them. Okay? So, progressive dispensationalism says, yes, Israel does have a future, but the church has joined them. So God has said, you know, I'm going to take Jonathan to the baseball game, and when we go to the baseball game, it's Jonathan and David who came to the baseball game. But as we said, that's not how covenants work. It's not just a casual promise. It's a, it's a promise more akin to a marriage covenant or a last will and covenant, and that's, that's where the tension is uh, for me. So I say only traditional dispensationalism preserves the covenant without changing its terms. Okay? So let's take a look then at these covenants. We'll start 
with the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, I've got six. I've got five topics left for six weeks, uh, so uh, I've got a, a week to spare, and I might use it right 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 up front here. Uh, but uh, we'll start here with the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, if you have your Bibles here. Um, we find that uh, this uh, Abrahamic covenant is detailed. Well, it's, if I could say, it's, it's sort of promised in Genesis 12, but the formalization of the covenant doesn't come until Genesis 15. So it's, uh, that's probably where I would, uh, where I would put it. Okay? Really, it's the entirety of Genesis 15. Let, let's just go ahead. I'll, I'll read the whole chapter because it becomes, it, it, we want to appeal to much of it. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Okay, so here... Here, here, here's Abraham. He's very concerned about his biological ethnic offspring, and and, and it, it's clearly it's clear clear that he understands it in these terms. It's not just some sort of a spiritual seed is going to inherit the promises given to Abraham. It's actually his kids, and so he said, "You can't fulfill this covenant with me because I have no kids, and Eliezer, my servant, is going to inherit my state." The word of the Lord then came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir, Isaac, we know. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. This is, of course, a key passage uh, cited in Romans 5. Uh, 4 and 5 as a proof that he has been justified. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Give me some sort of a, a, a covenant guarantee. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite one another. Remember we talked about this? This is the Doritas. Uh, the, the, those who would enter into the covenant uh, would basically say, if I don't keep this covenant, may this happen to me. Right? We split in two. Okay, it's pretty graphic. The birds he didn't cut in half. Uh, then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a, covenant, in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward as they come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, appeared, representative of God here, 
passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, and a host of other folks. Okay? So that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's a very formal uh, arrangement here. There are basically three provisions that are made. There's going to be a seed, and we understand this to be an ethnic, physical seed. This is exactly what Abraham said. I have to have kids from my own loins, he said. And that's the promise. And so, and God assures him, yes, your kids from your own loins will be the recipients of this, uh, this covenant. Which I think is very important here because it can't be replaced by some sort of a spiritual seed that is not from the loins of Abraham, that are the sons of Eliezer. Those don't count. Now, I don't know if anybody here is a descendant of Eliezer. I have no, no clue whether his, 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 his uh, family still exists. But they don't count. They cannot be the recipients of this promise. Only Abraham's physical seeds. And this would be uh, a, a group as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in fact, uh, the, the word nation is used here. Okay? There's also a land that is promised. Uh, it is described here as extending from the river of Egypt. Um, there's a little bit of debate as to what that is. It could be the Nile River. Uh, probably it's the, the river uh, that marks the edge of Egypt, uh, the river of the, uh, the Wadi al-Arish. The reason we think this is because when they're in Egypt, they're not in the Promised Land. They had to leave it to go to the promised land. So probably not the Nile, but the Wadi al-Arish. They have to cross that to get into the promised land. And that land will extend from that point all the way up to the Euphrates River. Now, the Euphrates River is massive, of course. Um, It starts there in the north of what is now Syria. In fact, it's possible, I haven't looked at a map, but it's possible that it could extend all the way into western Turkey. It's a long river. Eastern Turkey. Uh, it's a long river. Uh, certainly, it starts in Syria. It goes through goes through most of Iraq, modern day Iraq, and then uh, dumps into the Persian Gulf. Some have suggested that the promise is, is that Israel will receive the entire Mesopotamian Valley. Um, this may be. I'm, I'm inclined to think that uh, based on uh, later descriptions of the land, particularly in the book of Numbers, uh, that, it, that it doesn't go all the way out there. It goes up to the Euphrates River, but then it sort of weaves its way down along the Jordan. So, but, it's, but it's very specifically defined. In fact, if you, the, uh, there, at, at numerous points along the way, there is, there is a description of the perimeters of the land. Um, sometimes they're extremely detailed. The one in numbers, especially, it goes up for five, six, seven verses, and it, you, go, you know, go to this city, and then you then you cut southwest, and you hit this river, and follow the river, and then you, and it, and, it, and it's just detailed. You can you can actually sort of trace it along. A couple of cities have been lost, uh, but for the most part, you can pretty much trace the land. It's very important to God that the perimeters be carefully established. This is the land. It's not that we will receive the earth, you know, the new earth. That's, that's not the promise. The promise is that Israel, an ethnic group, will 
possess this land and hold on to it forever. Okay, so it's a land and then a blessing. Personal blessing, first of all, I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And uh, so there's, there's something of a personal blessing. Abraham himself uh, will, be, will be a legend among men. But there's also a national blessing, too. So this, this promise of uh, the nations that bless the nation that comes from your loins will be blessed. The nations that curse the nation from your loins will be cursed. So it's a national blessing as well. And then ultimately it becomes a universal blessing as well because Abraham himself will be honored by the world and this seed, remember uh, in, in Galatians we have this exchange that, that, uh, that uh, Paul points out that is the language here. Sometimes the language says seed singular and sometimes it says seeds plural. Okay, so the seeds, plural, would be Abraham's physical descendants, but a couple of occasions here, the, the, the word is singular, and Paul says you should have figured out that that was the seed. You know, among the seeds, there's going to be a singular seed, Jesus Christ, who is going to bring universal blessing to the world. Okay, so there are blessings that accrue to people outside of the nation, but only through the nation. Okay? It's, it's not as though it's, these are independent blessings that accrue to everyone generally. It's only through the nation uh, that these blessings uh, can come. Okay? So these uh, blessings only belong indirectly to the world. They're mediated through Abraham and his family. So that's the provisions. Questions up to this point? Interrupt me at any time. Uh, yeah, I Again, the, the covenant theologians—they uh, just stick with the idea of spiritualizing and just say, uh, shrug their shoulders and just say, "Spiritual Israel, it's the church, and it's just understood spiritually." And they, that's how they get around this. I mean, this. Yeah, the specifics of the Old Testament are largely ignored, and and like you say, they would clean it up by saying spiritualized. Sounds better than anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but but effectively that's what's going on. So it's so despite all the detail that goes into this, it's just sort of washed away. There's it's a spiritual seed and there's going to be a spiritual land, which will be the eternal state. Wow. <laughs> so that's effectively what happens. Now, there's New Covenant theology, which basically says everything, if everything's typological, that uh, the, the, land, the, the seed promised to Abraham was little, and it gets bigger and bigger, and as it gets bigger and bigger, the old is sort of set aside until, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if I can make the, let's use the baseball uh, game again. Um, I, I say to my son, John, hey, uh, you know, set, set aside a couple hours in the afternoon. We're going to sit down and watch the ball game. You know, we're going to have some father-son time. We're just going to sit down. He thinks, oh, we're going to sit down on the couch and, and watch Fox Sports, and we're going to we're going to watch the Tigers game. But then, you know, about an hour before the game starts, I say, hey, hop in the car, and he'll say, why? I thought we were going to watch the game together. Well, we are. We're going to watch it in person. 
And then all of a sudden, like, wow, okay, I misunderstood the first covenant, if I can call it that, the first promise, um, but I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd much rather go to the game in person than to watch it on TV, so, so who's going to complain if the promise gets better? Okay, and that's the argument that they use. Okay, so there's a promise made to a, some guy, some, 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 some wandering Aramean, there's a promise made to him that his seed are going to be a blessing. Okay. But not only that, everybody else is going to get the same thing. So let's forget about him and realize that something much better and bigger and greater. So who's going to complain about that? Okay. Well, Abraham might complain about that because the promise was not made to everyone. It was made to his kids, to his family, his nation. Okay. Yeah. So let's look at the characteristics of this covenant. First of all, we say here it's a unilateral promissory covenant. And this is clear because only God passes, uh, enters into covenant. Abraham's put into a trance and he's just sort of standing sort of sitting there watching. He doesn't enter into covenant. It's simply a promise made to God. Which means that if, if there's any question about whether this promise is going to be fulfilled absolutely, it's set aside here. There's nothing of Abraham's participation that contributes to the fulfillment of this covenant. It will happen. Because God has promised unilaterally to do this, and Abraham simply said, okay, uh-huh, thank you. That's it. It's Israelite. It's made with a single clan, Abraham and his physical descendants, and I put all these texts in there because this seems to be a, an important theme. Uh, to the Old Testament scripture writers, that it has to be his physical, ethnic descendants, not just a, a seed by faith. The other clans of the earth could, you know, tap into some of the blessings, but the covenant was not technically made with them. The covenant was made with Abraham and his seed. Letter C, and here's an, a critical point here, is that it's eternal. Okay? In fact, we're going to see this about all the covenants. They're eternal in nature. Uh, some would suggest, some, particularly within Reformed theology, that as you sort of study through the Old Testament, there's at least one and possibly two occasions where Israel got the land. Uh, under David, uh, they, they controlled the land from the Wadi El Arish up to the Euphrates, and under the combined rule of Jeroboam and Uzziah uh, later on. Uh, the, together, uh, those kingdoms covered from the Wadi Al Arish all the way up to the Euphrates River. So there it is. The covenant's been fulfilled. Except for one very important word that's overlooked. They will possess the land forever. <laughs> well, they don't have it now. And so therefore, the terms of the covenant have not been fulfilled because they have not held on to that land forever. And so there must be some point in the future where Israel, ethnic, the ethnic Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, will get this land and maintain possession of it. Okay? And so for that reason, I conclude here, letter D, that it remains unfulfilled. Uh, now, Galatians 3 indicates that Christ, as Abraham's physical seed, is a vital link to the fulfillment of Abraham in, uh, Abraham's covenant. He is not the totality of the fulfillment in his first advent. 
crosswork is essential. There's a growing seed of Abraham according to faith, which includes us as New Testament believers, but it doesn't give us liberty to spiritualize the whole of the promise. Abraham clearly anticipated physical children and a nation. And those things haven't happened yet, and so we're assured that they will. The land, again, we've already talked about this. Um, No need to go into that. And then the blessing. We have a glimpse, perhaps, of the blessing of Abraham's seed to the nations when the nations poured into the land to acknowledge Solomon in 1 Kings 10. I think that's a, that's a wonderful you know, window into what conditions might be like in the millennium when the nations of the earth will honor Israel and they will stream to her light to employ her high priestly services. Uh, uh, for the nations, they will be a, a, a nation of priests, uh, the way they were supposed to be. Uh, so we see this with this window in it, but it doesn't last. Okay, and so we find here uh, that there is the, the blessing uh, remains incomplete at this point. Pieces of it have come together to make it a, a, a certainty and a certain reality. But all the pieces of the covenant haven't come together in, in terms of fulfillment. Okay? So that's the Abrahamic covenant. Now obviously I'm making some emphases here because uh, we're, we're going to sort of piece them all together at the end. But uh, any questions up till this point? Yeah? I missed a couple of weeks. So the land. <laughs> so when, where will the new heaven and the new earth, when does that take place? Well, the new heaven and the new earth will come here. Okay. Um, and there is, in fact, uh, you know, Dr. McCune, when he was our, our instructor, would say often that this is probably one area where dispensationalism is underdeveloped. You know, how do, how do we make the transition from the, from the millennial state into the eternal state? Um, it, it appears, is there some sort of continuity between the old earth and the new earth. I mean, obviously, the old earth is destroyed, right. and the new one comes. But there seems to be some sort of, uh, at least, resemblance of the new world, the new earth to the old earth. Uh, perhaps it's you know something that looks like the first earth that was created here, and it's all of its perfection uh, that's 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 restored there. But I think there will be still you know even 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 in Genesis one and two we had we had specific rivers, mentions, and mountains that we still know where they are. And so it seems like we, we've got a lot of similarity. And so I understand, particularly in Revelation, that there is going to be the new Jerusalem coming out of God and basically sitting where the old Jerusalem is now, um, that it will come down on an earth that has resemblance to the old earth. And so... And so this promise that they will hold on to this land forever, I think, is a is a is a true forever, not just to the end of normal history, but really into the age. So, you have the New Jerusalem, however big that cube is, okay, and so there's some talk of it, okay. One, one set of measurements that I ran across would make it kind of difficult for that huge thing to set on earth but anyway however it is however it is the land will continue on into the eternal state 
I understand that, yes. Okay. Okay. There's, there's debate among dispensationalists, so I should say that... So there's kind of like travel between the New Jerusalem and, and Earth? Well, yeah, there's some... there's some Because the language is, is less than clear, some suggest that the, land, that the city sort of hovers over the Earth. Yeah. Some suggest that it actually plants on the Earth. Um, probably not enough data to say with absolute certainty what exactly goes on. In fact, you said it was a cube. Uh, one of the going theories right now is that it's a pyramid. But uh, its length, length width and, and its height. width and its height, that's, right. that is a cube. Well, not, not, well maybe. Not necessarily. not necessarily. Yes. No length, <laughs> width, and height. That means that means full length, full width, full length, and full height <laughs> but not are all the same. No because cube. I mean, no, no triangle at all. Okay, cube. so this is the length, width, and... We, I don't know if I can do this in three dimensions and height. So that makes sense. It doesn't even look like a pyramid. Okay, so you go length, width, and height, which would make it a little bit more reasonable. But at the top, the length and the width are not the same at the bottom. The length and the width have got to be the same at the top as they are at the bottom. Well, it doesn't say. It just says that the length at the bottom, the width at the bottom, the height. It, it, it doesn't say at the bottom. Well, it doesn't say it's not either. Okay. Well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's probably and again. That's that's why part of the debate is there's not enough information to absolutely say. It does make sense that a a, a city would work better if it's a triangle shape <laughs> than a, than a square shape, a cube shape. But uh, of course, the board they have a cube, right? So no trickies here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can get the next one in here. The Mosaic Covenant, and I say, and also the Palestinian Covenant. Um, uh, Exodus 20 is our critical passage here. Uh, Exodus 20 to 31 is really the whole of the covenant, uh, especially chapter 24, 1 through 8. This is the, actually the formalization of the covenant. The terms of the covenant really cover about 12 chapters here, uh, but the formalization of it occurs here in chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Then he, God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, this is before their uh, unfortunate demise, 70 of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance 
But Moses alone is to approach the Lord, the others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, entering into covenant here, everything that the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men. They offered burnt sacrifices and offerings, sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it onto the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey and then Moses took the blood of the covenant, effectively, here, the blood of the original covenant, and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Okay, so this is the formalization of this covenant. So the provisions, uh, they're not just contained in these eight verses here, but Israel will function as a kingdom of priests. God will rule Israel through a mediator, his man, and then the world through Israel. Israel will be a holy nation, and God will eventually effect new provisions necessary to the ultimate fulfillment of its terms. In fact, as we come to the Palestinian covenant, or the second giving of the law, we do get some new information. Okay? And there is a promise here. This is the first. This is the most. This is the initial promise that there's going to be a new covenant. Okay, I will put. Uh, I will change their hearts to a man. They will be regathered from the nations where I have scattered them. They will be restored to the land. Their enemies will be judged, and Israel will experience abundant prosperity. So this is basically how the old covenant is ultimately going to be fulfilled by God introducing new terms, which really are the new covenant. So there's a continuity of sorts between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, I don't want to say that they're the same thing. That would be problematic because the new covenant offers a tremendous advance on the old covenant. But in effect, this is, this is how the old covenant is going to be fulfilled by God changing their heart to a man. And so that's, and, and we're, going to see, we're going to see, that's the new feature of the new covenant, that God will put a new heart, uh, a, 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 he will take away their stony heart and insert a, a heart of flesh and put his spirit within them so that they will stand and serve him from shoulder to shoulder. Okay. So that's, uh, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the old covenant, the uh, Mosaic covenant. Characteristics here of this covenant. It's a binding suzerainty covenant because it is entered not only by God who wrote the terms of it, but also by the people who on more than one occasion says everything we do, it, this, this, this covenant says we will do. They say this in Exodus. They say it in Deuteronomy. They say it again in Joshua. Okay, so uh, three occasions where they enter into covenant and they, they reiterate uh, that they are planning to keep this covenant. Okay. However, once the covenant was agreed to, God obliged himself to guarantee the completion of the terms necessary to the fulfillment of that covenant, which is why we have Deuteronomy 36. In order to keep the covenant, I will put my spirit into their hearts and circumcise their hearts, giving them a, sto a, a, a heart of flesh to replace the, uh, 
the stony heart that they already have. And so it will be completed then by the one who will effect new and efficacious terms uh, in order to its wholesale realization. Now we could say a whole lot more about this covenant. I mean, really dominates the, the Old Testament. Uh, we could we could we could look at all of its terms and it, and their their legion. Uh, but I think this is enough to, to say what we what we needed to say uh, for the uh, for the purposes of the course. Okay, thoughts about this covenant? Okay, I don't have time to get to the next through the next one, which would mean we would have to cut off right in the middle of it. So we'll just go ahead and stop here. Get let you out early. Mark it down. Put it down. <laughs> I'm saving those five minutes for later. <laughs> yes, sir. So is part of the problem with covenant theologians looking at all these great promises of Scripture and then looking at present reality and seeing that it's not fulfilled and thinking, hmm, it, we have to spiritualize or we have to allegorize because... because it just isn't so yet, rather than saying, hey, it doesn't have to be fulfilled in my time. God will fulfill it in his time. Right. It, they're trying to figure out how, how is it that Israel folded and, and sort of fell off the map of what God was doing in the universe, and the Gentiles pop up into existence of the Gentile church, and it continues to do the work of God. And you say, okay, if in fact God's decree is immutable and God doesn't change, then this must be the new Israel. Because, and, and, and that's basically the thinking that's there. Uh, if, if we suggest that there are two peoples of God, now we've got a giant bifurcation in, in, the, uh, in the decree of God and God doesn't do it, that, God doesn't act that way. And so that, that's the only solution that, that comes to their mind, that this group must have replaced this group. Yeah. And that's the only solution that they're entertaining. As the, it's the only problem. And, and, I mean, give them credit. I mean, looking at it from the, you know, from the big perspective, okay, well, that, that makes some sense. They're, tr- they're trying to defend God's immutability. And so in order to defend his immutability, we'll somehow say that this, was, this, is, this, this church is the new Israel or Israel was old, the Old Testament church, and try and create a continuity that way in defense of an immutable God. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm giving them credit for credit to do. I think they're doing their best to try to defend God. It's a theodicy of sorts. They're trying to defend God. I think they're doing it the wrong way, but I give them credit for, for, for what they're attempting to do. Now, the one, the, the one verse about uh, the thing about that David will not lack uh, mm-hmm. a seed... Or a son to be on the throne. Now, how do we, how do dispensationalists explain that gap from let's just, yeah. to Let's just wait till next week. We'll talk oh, about okay. that with the Davidic covenant. Okay? Okay, so I gave you three minutes then. <laughs> we'll see you next week.